I'm Doug Fullington. I'm the manager of audience education here at PNB. Welcome to our Director's Choice program. We have a program with this name every year, and I always say, uh, even though this is called Director's Choice, all of the ballets we present are our Director's Choice. Part of Peter Bowles' position is to select the repertory for the company, but this program does have a particular focus each year, and, and that is to, in a sense, bring to our attention as the audience dance makers who are on the rise or prominent in the dance world or sometimes even produced uh, from within, in the case of Paul Gibson, our ballet master. So the Director's Choice Evening has a particular focus and flavor. Now tonight we have three ballets and we've seen other work by all three of these choreographers. None of the choreographers is new to us, but two of the works are new and one, in the case of Paul Gibson's Rush, is a work we haven't seen for quite some time and we'll start with that. But I also want to make sure you're, you know that I love to answer questions and have any kind of discussion you'd like, so please don't hesitate at any time. So Rush is our opening ballet. Now this was made when we were down the street at Mercer Arts Arena in 2002 while the Opera House was being remodeled and renovated into McCaw Hall as we know it today. So we had about a season and a half, I think, down there in Mercer Arts Arena. And during that time, Kent Stoll and Francie Russell, our artistic directors at that point, commissioned Paul for this piece, Rush. Now, Paul was still dancing in the company. He was the principal dancer. Uh, he'd retired two years later in 2004. And as soon as he retired, he was named a ballet master for the company. And as you probably know, the ballet masters are responsible for maintaining the repertory, meaning they know all of the steps for the ballets they're responsible for. And when those are revived for the company, they are often the ones who will have the rehearsals to teach all of the roles. And also, once we have a choreographer in to choreograph for us or a stager in to teach a work we're acquiring, the ballet masters are responsible once they are gone to maintain those works in the repertory. They also work with the children in the school who perform with the company. They also teach the company in their daily class. They share that responsibility with Peter Bull. Peter is also sometimes a ballet master as well. Uh, particularly for uh, balancing repertory that he sets for us. So Paul has a big role with us, but in addition to his ballet master role and his uh, tenure as a former dancer, he is a choreographer and has made several pieces for the company. Rush is a pretty big work. It's in three movements. It is for 18 dancers. We have a lead couple and two solo or what we might call demi couples and then six couples in the ensemble. So a large-scale work, and I think it really needs to be because it's a large-scale piece of music. This is uh, a piece by the Czech composer Bohuslav Martinu. It was composed in 1938 at a very tumultuous time in world history, particularly European history as well as American. Uh, in 1938, Czechoslovakia was about to fall to the Nazi regime as a result of the Munich Agreement. And a uh, very difficult time, and this music really uh, speaks of its time. It is full of drive and angst, almost a violent feel. And I don't mean to scare you off by that. 
I do think there's a great benefit in, uh, in music that is of its time and expresses a particular situation in history because it can give us a window on that that we might not otherwise have. So Paul has picked this music, but he hasn't choreographed it in a programmatic way, meaning he hasn't tried to apply a story from the time to it. He simply uses it as a springboard for choreography and for movement that is athletic and quick and fleet and matches the spirit, I think, as well as the drive of this music. Paul was trained in what we would refer to as the American neoclassical style, the classical style of ballet that developed in the 20th century. It is exemplified by fast footwork, strong legs. Uh, again, I use the word fleet, just an ability to be very articulate. Uh, Paul was very adept in this movement style, and it is the style in which most of the company is trained and very at home. On top of that, Paul knows the dancers of the company so well. Whether he's choreographing on them or now selecting them for this revival of his work uh, 14 years after it was made. And he has taken the opportunity to change some of the choreography and uh, rework some of the sections as I, th as I think anyone might uh, choose to after they've lived with a piece for a while and, and think, well, maybe I want to see this here or I can see this person doing this here. I think in casting the work too, he can cast to the strength of the dancers, but he can also challenge them because he knows them so well. We will see Leslie Rausch and Jerome Tisserand as the lead couple tonight, very strong, uh, powerful couple, and often paired together, so they work very well and easily together and can maneuver through all of the challenges that Paul has set for them. We have new lighting this time, too, and I mentioned that uh, lighting plays well, always plays a huge role in ballets. I talked about it quite a bit with Romeo and Juliet last time with the stark white sets and then the lighting becomes almost the scenic design if you will. And likewise in this evening uh, the lighting plays such a role in all of the works. And Lisa Pinkham is with us from Houston. She is Paul's favorite collaborator, and he always tries to bring her in when he has a ballet of his going on stage. She's designed, I think, a beautiful uh, setting for Paul's work. Lots of light from the side, uh, light on the floor that almost gives it a glass-like quality. I'm always fascinated at the designs that they can almost project, if you will, onto the floor. It's quite beautiful. It has a little bit of a hard quality, and I think that that complements what we're hearing, complements what we're seeing. So this is our opening work. Uh, the dancers love to work with Paul. Uh, he's a great ballet master, and uh, that really uh, carries over into his role as a choreographer and a coach in the studio as well. So after Rush, we have our first intermission, and then we come to Little Mortal Jump by Alejandro Cerudo. Now, Cerudo is the resident choreographer at Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, a very, uh, very highly respected and celebrated contemporary dance troupe. Some of our professional division students just attended an audition for Hubbard Street. I think there were hundreds of dancers there. Uh, which was a testament to the 
uh, high profile of the company. Dancers really want to be involved there because of the repertory and because of the uh, visibility that the company has, the touring, the home in Chicago. Cerruto, Alejandro Cerruto is their resident choreographer and he has been with us before several years ago. He made a work for us called Memory Glow, which introduced us to his movement style, which I think on the whole we could say is uh, is a somewhat of a lyrical movement style. It's very smooth. Uh, it's a little bit lower to the ground. Uh, the dancers are often wearing uh, socks rather than point shoes, which gives just a completely different look to the way they're connected to the ground, connected to the floor, uh, the ways that they can move laterally uh, on the floor. And that, boy, that sounds so technical, but uh, I can visualize it in my mind and the, the beautiful smoothness that's achieved. And it's a, it's a real contrast to what we'll see in Rush. It's a little bit more grounded. It's a little lower. Also, the, the look and feel of the work is completely different. And I'm going to try and give you a bit of a picture of this work without reviewing it for you, which I try not to do. And I'm really tempted on this one because uh, I was very excited and, and uh, surprised when I saw it at the dress rehearsal because I wasn't quite sure uh, what to expect. Having seen it in the studio, I had no idea of the, uh, the complete theatricality of the work. So I'll, tr I'll try and say a little bit, but you have to see it, as you will. First off, we look at the music, and it's just quite a collection, and all the details are in the Encore program. But uh, I think Alejandro, uh, one, has a very large music collection. Two, is quite very taken and interested in film music, cinematic music, and I can see why, because film music, music to accompany anything on a stage can evoke an emotion quite quickly and I think that's the role. If you think of a film, the music tells us so much. It can comment on what we're hearing and seeing on the screen. It can tell us what's going to happen. I always think of horror films because the music tells you. They, I, I can't watch that, those. but um, And uh, they can help us remember if there are themes for certain characters and situations. They might not be on the screen, but the music tells us to remember them. The music, of course, is so powerful. And in, in film, it needs to be quite immediate. Needs, the effect needs to happen very quickly. And uh, we have music like this in this collection. It goes all the way from uh, Alexander Desplat, celebrated film composer, to Philip Glass. Uh, celebrated uh, composer of minimalist American music to Tom Waits, uh, uh, Beirut, and just just it's this very disparate collection. And when I first saw you know the credits come into us when this piece was programmed, I thought, wow, that is a potpourri of uh, selections here, and how's this going to work? Reminds me a little bit of the Twyla Tharp ballets that she was doing in the 80s. It's right around the time when the CD format was, was available, and so you could buy a bunch of CDs, you could buy a six CD changer and fill it up with your CDs, and then make a playlist. You know, which everyone does now on their phone and on their computer, but you could do this in your stereo, and that way you could have a you could program, if you will, music for a ballet in a way that you couldn't before. Uh, and you could have recorded music that would 
create effects and sounds, or if it was a singing voice, you could have that singing voice as, as your uh, soundtrack, if you will, for your dance. And uh, we have some Twyla ballets like that, Water Baby Bagatelles, I think of that. And if you played that live, you'd have 120 people in the pit just to make all the different sounds that are collected in, in that selection of recordings. And similarly here, we have a, a wide selection from Ceruto. Now, where are we going with all this? Well, what is the, the look and feel here? Uh, the dancers wear uh, clothes that are, are not, they don't look like dance clothes. They're a bit retro and look like uh, street clothes, if you will. The men have button-down shirts and, and very thin suspenders that go into gray knickers and then into to black socks. The women have uh, sort of retro-style dresses with black lace over white, uh, short uh, sort of day dresses, if you will, and the hair is in a, a low bun, which is a more older style. <clears throat> For Balanchine, just FYI, it's usually the high bun, that's the look, and that's what we have for Justin Peck, who's a member of New York City Ballet, and then Paul has the French twist, which is very in fashion right now. Uh, many ballets, the French twist, so all the women have to learn how to do the twist, and uh, it just gives a different head shape. So you have three different hairstyles in this ballet. So if the women dance all three, you know what they're doing during intermission. <laughs> I've heard about it. So, so a little bit of a retro look here. And uh, some. these are the things I really caught in the studio. Some wonderful and very intimate solos and duets where the dancers have a... Uh, of course, they have their choreography, but there's a, a naturalistic quality to the way they move and interact with each other that I think we can immediately relate to. And when I saw it in the studio, it made me think, well, this ballet might work best on a small stage. It looks very intimate. We would want to be close, or we might miss something. And likewise with the solos. It's one dancer, you know, the closer you are, maybe the more you see. Well, then I saw it on the stage here and realized that he is surrounded these dances with larger scale theatrical effects. I'm not going to give them all away to you. Let me just say that the piece benefits or is not hurt by a very large stage and a very large house and that he has somehow uh, dealt with that juxtaposition of the intimate uh, dances on stage and the larger uh, uh, theatricality that a large house and stage affords you. Boy, is that cryptic. But you just have to see it. I felt like, too, let me just finish this one thought, that we start, it's almost a journey, and I, I don't use words like that usually, but we start in one place with this work, and we, we have wit, and we have surprise, and then we end in a completely different place. That What I thought was wonderful was that I felt no bumps along the way. I went wholeheartedly right along with this uh with this thought and journey and change as we went through the piece. I was just, uh, I was uh, mesmerized by it. And here I'm starting to review it, so I'll stop. Yes. Is the Hubbard Street stage the same size as ours? That's a good question. I'm not sure if the Hubbard Street stage is the same size. I would guess it's smaller. We have a big stage. When we tour, we rarely have a stage this big. Uh, we have, it's, it's wide, it's not exceptionally deep, but it's quite wide in our house at 2,900 seats. It's large, and large for ballet. Um, there are many people who, who would say, well, a 1,500-seat theater is, would be much more suited to ballet. Uh, but I think that 
Even if it is smaller for Hubbard Street, somehow it has translated, I think, translated quite well here. Now, you'll, be, you'll need to be the judge. Don't take it from me. But uh, I just... I think what we should see here is that many disparate elements or elements that might suggest that they can't work together uh, potentially work together quite well here, and I find that fascinating. Uh, I also love that he is willing to include wit and some humor in his works and subtle humor. Uh, it's not all so serious uh, that there's not a place for... Uh, some some duality of, of emotion there, if you will. Yes, please. Little Mortal Jump refers to an event towards the beginning of the work. It'll be obvious. So yes. And it's a it's it's apropos, I think. Yeah. So I'm quite excited about this piece. Uh, I think what we. Uh, with Memory Glow, it was a mellow and subdued, lovely piece. But I think here, with Little Mortal Jump, we see a broader range. And it's the range that I have read about in uh, reviews and writings about Ceruto. So I'm so pleased that Peter Bull has programmed uh, this work. I find it fascinating. And again, for a Director's Choice program, it gives us an idea of what... Uh, Hubbard Street is presenting and what others are talking about when this company tours so extensively. So we get uh, a feel for that uh, genre and that style here in our own repertory. All right, let's go on then to uh, Year of the Rabbit by another resident choreographer, this time Justin Peck, just 28 years old and the resident choreographer of New York City Ballet. Boy, I think he's made 10 works for them in three and a half years and this next season he has three or four premieres for them and he is he is really producing he uh, is also a soloist with the company so he maintains a full-time dancing career as well as his, his choreographic career not only at new york city ballet but he is uh, choreographing for other companies he made a work called debonair for us which was uh a work more on the uh, sort of retro romantic side, if you will, uh, for six couples uh, a couple of seasons ago. And now we have Year of the Rabbit. Someone asked, uh, I think at the dress rehearsal lecture down here, why Year of the Rabbit? Well, I believe it's because it's the first of his ballets to come out of exclusivity. What that means is when a company um, commissions a work Usually in the contract with the choreographer, the company will retain the right to be the sole producer of that ballet for a certain amount of time. Sometimes it's one year. I think more often than not, it's about three years. Sometimes it's five. And after that exclusivity runs out, the choreographer is uh, free then to license the work to other companies. So I know Peter Bowl had his eye on this work because it was the one that put Justin on the map, if you will. Uh, and he called Justin, and uh, we thought we'd be the first to get it, but apparently Miami City Ballet had called the day before. So they got it just before us, and now we have it. But I think we benefited because our stagers, the two people that came to teach it, Craig Hall and Janie Taylor, who were original cast members 
of the New York City Ballet production, had the chance to stage it at Miami first. I think we benefited from that because they were coming at it the second time around. And I think as you stage and teach your work, you begin to, each time you learn more about the process, uh, how long it takes to teach particular sections, what might be difficult for dancers if you thought had thought maybe it was easy and things like that. So they were terrific. Uh, they're also uh, colleagues and even childhood friends of many of our dancers who all uh, had gone to school together at School of American Ballet and so forth. So it was a lot of fun to have them here. The piece itself is fun. Uh, subtitle is Selections from the Chinese Zodiac. It's set to music by Sufjan Stevens. Uh, it's music that's orchestrated for string orchestra from his album Enjoy Your Rabbit. Again, based uh, the movements are based on the Chinese Zodiac with a few additions by Stevens himself. And you can see in the seven movements, we have Year of the Ox, Rabbit, Tiger, Dragon, and so forth. Janie Taylor, one of our stagers, explained that they're uh, like Paul's ballet, not a literal quality too much to the choreography, but there is, she said, like in the Tiger movement, there are more majestic movements. Uh, Angelica Generosa, who dances the opening, said, it's Year of the Ox, and she's sort of pawing the ground a little bit. I don't know if oxes paw the ground, but she, hers does. And uh, so there are some references, but overall it's really a such a lively response to the uh, uh, uplifting rhythmic uh, light, really, quality of, of the music. And Justin Peck has collaborated several times with Sufjan Stevens uh, to real success. A uh, nice inside story here is that this work began as a uh, workshop work for the New York Choreographic Institute. It's a little bit like our Next Step program that we have in which our company dancers choreograph on the professional division students, the highest level of the school. That's presented each year in June. New York City Ballet uh, has begun the New York Choreographic Institute uh, where choreographers work with students, advanced students at the School of American Ballet which is the affiliated school. Their program's a little broader in that they're able to bring in some outside choreographers. But Justin, as a member of New York City Ballet, was one of the uh, fellows, if you will, for the Institute. And one of the dancers that he created uh, this piece on in its uh, seminal uh, stage was Angelica Generosa in a role that then became the role uh, that Ashley Bowder danced at New York City Ballet. She's a great technician, jumper, turner, uh, a ball of fire like Angelica is. And now Angelica is dancing the role here and you'll see her tonight. So she was part of the inspiration of the choreography for this work back I think in 2010 uh, when she was still at School of American Ballet. So it's a nice full circle uh, experience for her and actually she'll be down here afterwards for the Q&A with Peter Bowl and also with Christian Poppy who's in the corps de ballet and I'm sure she'll uh, be able to uh, tell you some about that experience of working with Justin when she was still a student and what it's like now to dance the role. And uh, she uh, is a dancer that throws herself 110% into everything. So uh, I think you'll see it as it's meant to be seen tonight. Um, and we're just, we're very happy uh, as we are with Ceruto to have another work by Justin Peck in the repertory, particularly a work that shows us some of the early experimentation of his style, which as I haven't said uh, yet is exemplified uh, 
by his use of numbers on stage. Justin's very comfortable moving large numbers of dancers around the stage. Uh, and that's not always the case with choreographers. And I think some of it just has to do with your, uh, the experiences you've had at a dancer, as a dancer. Many choreographers come uh, from small companies or working with on smaller ensembles, but Justin comes from New York City Ballet, which is a large company with a large repertory. Uh, he dances works like Balanchine Symphony in C that has 48 dancers on stage. Balanchine also, as we know, a great uh, uh, deployer of dancers on stage, really knew how to use the stage, fill the space, and create movement even with a large number of bodies on stage where you might think, well, there's not as much room then for these people to move. Uh, Justin really finds a way to, uh, to show us geometry on stage and to be very innovative with the ensemble. And uh, it's very exciting to watch. There are 12 uh, dancers in the ensemble. There are three principal women, three principal men. But sometimes Justin wants more than 12 in his uh, configuration, so he'll just pull from the principal ranks and have those people participate. I think when the curtain goes up, we've got three rows of five, even though there's just 12 in the ensemble. So he just takes what he needs to, to realize those visions on stage. And uh, sort of endless imagination with use of stage space. And that's been something he's really been, been uh, celebrated for. And we'll see that tonight uh, in this early work of his. I, how can you call a 2012 work early? But I guess you can if you're 28. Because he's uh, really just, in a way, just starting out. But he's not, because he's been so prolific already. And uh, so, again, another reason he has a, a spot on the Director's Choice program. He is uh, out there. Uh, choreographing for a lot of companies. There are a lot of others in line for Year of the Rabbit. Uh, I know Netherlands Dance Theater, I think Houston, a uh, lot of other companies. So we're, we are in there, and our audience here is seeing what others are, are wanting to see as well. So a, really a great program, uh, really fulfilling, the I think, the vision of the Director's Choice repertory. So those are our three works. And we have a few minutes left for any questions. Yes, please. I don't believe Rush has been performed by other companies. I think we did it the one time. Uh, it's interesting because a little bit of that Mercer Arts Arena repertory sort of uh, somehow I think was repertory for that period of time. And then when we moved back onto the stage here, other repertory filled. Uh, you know, was was done because it could be done here. And we did things at Mercer Arts Arena that didn't require upward fly space and things like that. So it is nice now that it's been brought back. I think Peter um, asked Paul what he would like to do, and Paul said he would like to bring back Rush and have an opportunity to rework some sections. So I think it was Paul's choice, and nice that he has had the opportunity. Anybody else? Yes, please. You know, I'm not, I don't know the answer. And the question is whether Ceruto has done work on point. Not that I know of, but I really, I don't speak with any authority there because I'm not familiar with his entire repertory. The piece he did for us, uh, Memory Glow, was not on point. 
um, it was also in socks. And I, I would think that that's probably his norm, but I don't know if that's the whole story. He just did, and I forget for which European company, a Sleeping Beauty, which just premiered right before he came here. And uh, I've seen some film clips of that, and I'm not sure if any of that's on point. But it's possible that he has. If he hasn't yet, I bet he'll explore it at some at some time because it's it represents such a different way of moving. Yeah. There must have been some. There must have been something, uh, an orchestra pit or something that allowed for the effects. Must must have. And most halls are going to have some some orchestra pit, whether it's a large or a small one. So I'm assuming. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, it's a question unrelated to tonight's talk. Um, That's okay. Yes, Keon is uh, is choreographing. In fact, Keon is the resident choreographer, and I'm going to get it wrong. I want to say Al in Alabama. I could be wrong. I'd have to check his bio. But he uh, travels there periodically to choreograph. He's really, we're, we're lucky we've, we've kept him because he's filling so many roles. He has that resident choreographer work. He's managing our Next Step program, mentoring our uh, company choreographers teaching in the school and uh, so forth. So yes, he's maintaining the choreography career as well as uh, a whole lot of other things. Yeah, I know he's very excited to continue. Yes, please. Yeah, the women can have short hair. You have to. You um, there are all kinds of things you can do. You can have extra hair for a bigger bun. You can have a fall. It's called if you need to have long hair. Uh, if we have a ballet with ponytails, a lot of the women will wear a fall to have more hair. So um, like Noelani Pantastico has pretty short hair. I think she had extensions for Romeo and Juliet. So there's you know there's so many options now. And uh, some keep long hair just for the convenience for the ballets. But I know that when uh, they cut it off, that's also great, too. And they think, oh, less to deal with. But when it comes to performance, then you have to, you have to figure out how to do whatever is required. So, but there are lots of ways to, to get around it these days, which is nice. Yeah. Yes. Usually not. The women do their own hair. They're really good at hair. Because once you've been doing it sort of all your life, you can, you know, bam, just do it. Uh, in fact, I don't, I don't think we have any ballets where the women have assistance with their hair. Occasionally with makeup, if it's specialty makeup. Uh, but usually everyone does, does their own. Um, Wardrobe will usually, they will post what the sort of requirements are for hair for the different ballets and if there are any jewelry requirements or not, or if the makeup's different from the usual and so forth. So those parameters will be sort of set so that people know uh, what what to do here and there. And they, they just, uh, they're very self-sufficient, so yeah. 
All right, well, we are a little after, so I'm going to let you go. I just want to remind you about post-performance Q&A with Peter Bowl, Angelica Generosa, Christian Poppy. Thank you for coming tonight. I think you're in for a wonderful evening. Thanks for supporting the ballet.